Turn with me, please, to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2. We'll read the first 15 verses. We'll be looking particularly at verses 8 through 15, but let's get a running go at it from verse 1 of chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are grateful to come to you again in the middle of a week. We're grateful, Father, to be able to, to stop uh, our busyness and the calls for our attention and to look to you. And Father, as we've sung, we do acknowledge that it is such a privilege and a joy to find out the greatness of your loving heart. God, we thank you for the many ways in which you demonstrate that in our joys and in our sorrows and chiefly at the cross. God, we thank you for Christ and we thank you for salvation in him. We praise you for the fullness that resides in him and the fullness that is ours because of him. And God, we ask that you would help us tonight as we look briefly at these few verses. God, help us to to see what privileges, what blessings are ours as Christians because of him. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Have you heard the phrase, white privilege? There's a philosophy or a worldview that 
uh, is rapidly gaining ground and, and uses that phrase. And it views the world in terms of oppressors and oppressed. And I, that's not really what I'm talking about. But the same group also would see Christianity in the same kind of terms. The church is being an oppressor. People being oppressed by the church. Kind of in the same idea as Marx had, who said that the church was the opiate of the masses. If you are on opiates, uh, you, know, you don't tend to revolt. And so Marx saw that the church as an oppressor to the masses. Um, from what I understand, this worldview, not so much the people who are in the church, the people who are in the church and the church, I guess, as an institution, oppressors and others oppressed. So the church is a European kind of institution. And so not only is there the idea of white privilege, there is also the idea of Christian privilege. And so, while I disagree with the notion that true Christianity is a weapon of oppression, the idea there is really, I think, ridiculous. I say a hearty amen to the idea of Christian privilege. I don't say it as a negative. But I do want us to be careful that the word privilege does not become a dirty word, a word that we avoid. You know, you hear privilege and think, hey, oh no. In other times, the word privilege was known by other terms also. It was known as, as blessings. We've been blessed. We've been given something we didn't deserve. And so Christians are indeed a blessed people, a privileged people. Not that we are oppressors, but we've been privileged to receive from Christ grace upon grace that which we did not deserve. And so I want to urge you to, to check your privilege. Not check it at the door, but look at what God has given you in Christ Jesus and rejoice. Looking at what God has done in Christ Jesus, the hymn writer said, Praise my soul, the King of heaven, to his feet thy tribute bring. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, who like thee his praise should sing. The psalmist said, bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget none of his benefits. Who pardons all your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Christian, you have been filled with the fullness of Christ. That is a privilege. Rejoice. Rejoice. I want us to look at this idea tonight. And to begin, I want you to see first that this really all hinges upon this first thing. And it is that. Christ himself has been filled with the fullness of deity in bodily form. We see this in verse 9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Philip Arthur writes that this phrase or this verse was intended to remind Paul's readers that Jesus is wonderful beyond description. And it's true. Whatever adjective you apply to him, it's, it's inadequate. Whatever superlative you apply to him. It doesn't really say everything that could be said about Christ. Volumes have been written and the half has not been told. Christ is wonderful beyond compare. When Paul speaks of the fullness of deity dwelling in Christ, 
he borrows one of the ideas or the words being used by the people who threatened the church at Colossae. There were false teachers who were putting out the idea that there was more to be had. Christ is a good starting point, but there's more. There's deeper knowledge. And if you really want to move forward and grow in your Christianity, you need these other things. And Paul is warning the Colossians and warning us not to buy into philosophies, ideas that would move us away from Christ. There's no need because all the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form. Here, in the man Christ Jesus, God was pleased to dwell. Not in any half measure, but fully and completely. The all-seeing, the all-knowing God present in human form in the man named Jesus. It's really remarkable. This was not a temporary residence. He was pleased to dwell in him and he continues to dwell in bodily form, our man in heaven. Jesus is not merely overflowing with the character of God. So you see Christians who some are more Christ-like than others. And Christ is just that times ten. No, that's not it. He is not just God-like, but He is very God of very God. The idea is expressed in John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. These two natures, God, His, His divinity, His deity... And his humanity. These two natures so exist in him that his humanity is in no way lessened or or changed by his deity. He's completely man. And as a man, he gets tired. He gets hungry. He gets thirsty. He grew. And in his humanity... It exists with his deity in such a way that he in no wise compromises his deity. Both of those exist in him fully and perfectly and completely in one person. This body that he has is not just an image. Some people want to say that that that's the fact. He's a phantom. He looks like a man, but there's really no substance to that body. Because bodies are bad in, in some schools of thought. But the Apostle John quickly clears that up in his first epistle when he says... What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. These two natures, again, they exist in this one person, this one man, the God-man, Jesus. And this is a result of the incarnation. The uncreated God is born a man. And he does this to identify with us and fulfill his role as our mediator. Paul had previously expressed something of this in chapter 1 of Colossians. If you look at verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, 
so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Everything has been reconciled to the Father through him, this one in whom the Father's good pleasure was for the fullness to dwell in him. This is the one that Paul's talking about. This is the one that Paul warns the Christian not to buy into any kind of thought, any kind of philosophy that would move you away from him. That's not according to Christ, he says. Especially and particularly in this matter of salvation. There's no need to look anywhere else in this matter of salvation, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now, as wonderful as this doctrine is, and certainly sermons have been preached on that one verse, Paul doesn't stop with this statement, and we would need to move a little bit further. I want to look at verse 10, where we see that not only does this fullness reside in Christ Jesus, but the Christian has been made full in him. Verse 10 says, In him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. Another way that we could... Uh, say this idea that in him you've been made complete is that you are in him filled full. You've been filled with his fullness. In him this has happened. We are complete with his completeness. Now, these verses are packed and I just want to give you a few things to, to kind of chew on, okay? First, this is not something to which the Christian is to aspire you can be filled with the fullness of Christ. You can be made complete with Him, Christian. That's not what Paul said. Paul said you are filled with this fullness. You are complete in Him. Your experience, your enjoyment of that can rise and fall. But the reality of it is settled. If you are in Christ Jesus, that is a settled fact. You have been made complete in Him. It is a result of the fact that fullness resides in Christ, our mediator, and now united to him, our head, you also have been full, made full. Second, you are in him. In him is a position of emphasis. You might say that, again, this idea of your being filled with his fullness hinges on two things. The first being, as I've said, the fullness of deity dwelling in Christ in bodily form. And the second is your union with him. It is in him. It's not just by him, by his agency. It's something that he has accomplished for you. There's truth in that. It's not just through him, his instrumentation. It is in him. We have been united to him by faith. And it is in that reality, this union with him, that we have been filled with his fullness. By the new birth. You are united to Christ by faith. And in that union with Him, you are made full or complete or whole. Third, when the Bible here says that you are filled with the fullness of Christ, that filling is not the same kind of filling that dwells in Jesus. All right? All the fullness of deity dwells in Him in bodily form. All the fullness of deity does not dwell in you, though you are united with Him. But he does fill you up with himself. This is a, um, 
a limited example, as, as most illustrations are. You know, they have limits, but think of going to the ocean. Do you, some people like to go to the ocean, some do not. Um, I like to see the ocean. I, I was in South Florida last week, and about 45 minutes away from the ocean, and a packed schedule, and I told Elizabeth, I can't be here and not see the ocean. And so I carved out an hour and a half. I drove to the ocean, and where I arrived at, public beach, but all the parking was paid parking. And I'm, I mean, I'm literally going to look at the water and turn around and leave. And so I finally found a place where I thought I, I can get away with this for about a minute. I jumped out, ran to the beach, looked at the water. There it is, you know. I went back, got in the car, 45 minutes back. Imagine you, you're at the ocean. Here is the Atlantic. All this water. The ocean contains all of the Atlantic. And you have with you a cup. And you take your cup and you dip it into the Atlantic Ocean. You, it's, it's full to the brim. It's, it's dribbling over a little bit. That cup is full of the Atlantic Ocean. It cannot hold anything else. It is, it is full to the brim of the Atlantic Ocean. But there is no way you can say that all the Atlantic Ocean is in that cup. It's, it's still out there. You can't get it in that cup. You have been filled with Christ. By virtue of union with Him. That doesn't mean that all of Christ, all of the Godhead, dwells in you. It dwells in Christ bodily. You've been filled from His fullness. He has filled the container of your life to the brim. This fullness, this wholeness, is not just filling you up with more of you. It's a spiritual filling. It regards salvation. It's, it's a spiritual filling. Salvation, the most important of topics. You have been made complete here. There's nothing lacking if you are united to Him. Let me try to illustrate this this way. In the New Testament, we see numerous examples of Jesus healing people physically. And I want to quote you a number of verses. I'm going to run through these quickly. If you want them, I'll be happy to send them to you, but I don't expect you're going to keep up, okay? And I'm going to quote them from the King James. And I'm doing that because it, it translates every one of these a particular way. It uses the word whole, all right? And... The Greek words behind are different words, and the New American Standard that I typically read from reflects that. But I want you to see, it's a proper way to say it. These people are made whole. So, for instance, Matthew 9, 22. Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. Matthew 12, 13. Then saith he to the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it forth. And it was restored whole, like as the other. Matthew fifteen twenty eight. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Matthew fifteen thirty one. Insomuch that the multitude wondered, when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole, the lame to walk, the blind to see, they glorified the God of Israel. Mark 3, 5. And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, 
and his hand was restored whole as the other. Mark 5, 28, she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. Mark 5, 34, he said unto her, daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Luke 6, 10, looking round about upon them all, he said unto the man, stretch forth thy hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored whole. And there are others. I'll stop there. Again and again, Jesus heals and a person is made whole. And the idea I really want you to get is this. Jesus did not heal anyone partially. He healed them completely. When you go to the doctor, we're grateful for doctors. But a lot of times what we do is we treat symptoms, right? We're not really made whole or well. The problem underlying could still be there. We're just managing symptoms. Or you get a transplant. And the organ that was bad is now good. But there's all kinds of other issues that you're dealing with, right? But Jesus doesn't heal anyone partially. He heals them whole. And just as that is true physically, it's true spiritually. He has, if you are in Christ Jesus, He has spiritually healed you, if you will. He has made you alive in Christ. He's taken away the old nature. You are new, a new creature in Him, and you are whole. He has not partially healed you or partially saved you. He has saved you completely, wholly, fully, so that there's nothing else to be gained by Him. I'm not saying that we don't grow. I'm not saying we're not looking forward to the redemption of the body, which He has purchased and given us the Spirit as an inheritance of. But I am saying that He has already provided For that and everything else that you need in your salvation, there's nothing to be added. There's nowhere else to look. If only I had that. I have to look somewhere else for that. No. He has made you whole. In Him, you are complete. You've been blessed beyond measure. Filled to capacity with Christ and His fullness. His salvation. Why would you look anywhere else? Now, of what does this fullness consist? In verses 11 and 12, Paul speaks of the fullness that we have consisting of new life in Christ. Verse 11 and 12, And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, you might wonder at first glance, especially, why does Paul move to what appears to be the topic of circumcision? How has this got to do with this? I believe that he's addressing the false teaching the church is faced with. In Galatia, the Galatians were facing false teachers that said that circumcision was necessary for salvation, Jesus plus in that way. In Colossae, it appears that uh, the, the false teachers have added this kind of requirement as, as an advanced step in Christianity. So you can be redeemed. But if you really want to move ahead, you also need this as well as other things. And so I think he, he mentions this as a rebuttal to that idea. But he also pointedly tells us that it's not a physical circumcision that you need. You need a spiritual circumcision. 
And if you are in Christ Jesus, you have that. He calls it a circumcision not made with hands. And he calls it the circumcision of Christ. He's obviously not talking about something physical, but something spiritual. The truth that he's pointing to is the reality to which the physical circumcision was to point to all along. What the Old Testament often called a circumcision of the heart. In Leviticus 26.41, the Bible says, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make amends for their iniquity. And it goes on, but what he was looking for, here, here are people, the nation of Israel, who have received a physical circumcision, but he's looking for their uncircumcised hearts to be humbled, to be circumcised in heart. Ezekiel 44, 7 speaks of bringing in foreigners who are uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh to be in my sanctuary to profane it, even my house when you offered my food, the fat and the blood, for they made my covenant void. This is in addition to all your abominations. Or Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6, where there's more of a promise. Moreover, the Lord... Your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. What's he talking about? What's Paul talking about? He's talking about the cutting away of the sinful nature, putting that away. One translation of Colossians 2.10 says it this way. In him... You are also circumcised in the putting off of your sinful nature. Not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. A sinful nature has been put away. You've been given a new nature. Now, in these same two verses, Paul moves from circumcision to baptism. Just as he spoke of a spiritual circumcision, not a physical circumcision, he speaks of a spiritual baptism here, not a physical baptism. I don't think what he's talking about right now has anything directly to do with water. Water baptism is a picture of the reality that he's talking about, but he's talking about what actually happens to us. When a person is baptized, what does that picture? Verse 12 says it like this. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. What does it picture? It pictures a death, a burial, and a resurrection. Paul says something very similar in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, which also I believe not speaking directly about water baptism. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. Pardon me. So we too might walk in newness of life. If you're in Christ, then these things are true of you, believer, because you have been identified with Christ. He has become your your federal head, your representative before God. Your old nature has been put away and your sin has been put away and you've been made alive in Him, new life in Christ. This is part of the fullness with which you've been filled. 
This fullness also consists of forgiveness through Christ. Verses 13 and 14. Verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. It's hard to know what to leave out. Notice you were dead in your transgressions. You were insensitive to God, unresponsive to God. You were dead. If you go to a funeral, I'm sure many of you have been to funerals of people who were well-known, well-liked, and there is a huge turnout. Pre-COVID, right? Huge turnout. People hugging each other. You've got some people remembering the person and laughing, and you've got others in their grief who are weeping, and maybe they swap. You know, The people who are laughing start to weep, and the people who are weeping start to laugh and back and forth. And there's all these people milling about and moving about, and eventually... Everyone leaves. And all that movement, all that responsiveness to the occasion, but there's, there's one body there that is completely unresponsive. Does not move. Is completely immune to all stimuli. The body in the casket, because they're dead. You were dead in your transgressions. But Christ made you alive. Not only were you dead in your transgressions, but he says that you were in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Here, I believe the phrase is referring to the fact that they were Gentiles. So not only were you dead in your transgressions, but you didn't even know it. You didn't know what good news was. You didn't have the scriptures. You didn't have a hope. It's similar, I think, to what Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, 12 and 13. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Lost. That's terrible. If you can make it a little bit worse, you don't even know that there's a good news. You don't even know how lost you are. These people that he writes about here in Colossians, the Colossian believers, and really, we could say us, at one time, dead in our transgressions. And the uncircumcision of your flesh. But now, he made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. He's put them away. This idea of the transgressions being forgiven and put away is expressed wonderfully in verse 14. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Listen to the way the New King James translates verse 14. It says that he has wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So specifically, the the certificate of debt is is referred to here as the handwriting of requirements. Both of those are fine translations, but I want to put them together. I want to mash them together. Because the idea of debts, I think, really does help us. But also the idea of handwriting. So the handwriting of debts has been erased. It's It's been wiped out. 
This handwriting of death, the handwriting is, is the idea of an autograph. It's a signature. And so, basically, it's, it's an IOU. You know what that is, right? You borrow money, I owe you X amount of money, sign my name, I'm acknowledging my debt. And so this isn't God saying, here's the debt you owe, so much as it is the sinner saying, yes, I owe this debt. I can't pay it, but I acknowledge it's mine. And that acknowledged debt has been nailed to the cross and canceled out, wiped away. The, the canceling out of this certificate is, is not just being filed away in a filing cabinet where it might be reviewed at a later date. But it is to be blotted out or wiped away. It's the idea of, of taking a, an eraser onto a blackboard or a, a whiteboard and erasing the writing. You can imagine working out some complex problem. You've been thinking about it and jotting down ideas on this whiteboard. And some kid comes along, you know, and thinks I get to play and, and erases the whiteboard. And you come back to work and it's like, ah, you know, where did it go? Where did it go? It's gone. <laughs> you, know, you can't snap your fingers and make it come back. Christ has wiped away the IOU, the, the handwritten certificate of debt, nailing it to his cross. We're forgiven because the debt has been canceled by way of payment at the cross. This fullness also consists in verse 15, of victory through Christ. Verse 15 says, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Rulers and authorities here, I believe, refers to, to Satan and fallen angels. These Colossian false teachers had a fascination with uh, spirit beings and thought that one of the ways to hire uh, learning and, and deeper spirituality was through a series of angelic beings. And so they're impressed with this. But Paul states there's no reason to be impressed there because Christ has defeated them. He has, he has unarmed them. When it, it speaks of him disarming them, it's literally, he, he stripped them. It's a picture of, of a, an enemy being defeated and the conqueror taking his armor away so that there's not that threat anymore. And the public display paints a picture of a, a triumphant general parading his defeated captives through the street. Christ has stripped the enemy of that which made him appear dangerous. He's stripped him of his armor and he's publicly displayed him as fallen. And how has he done this? He's done it by means of the cross and his own death. What appeared to be disastrous was actually the means of victory and taking the, the, the teeth out of the enemy. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15 say, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. What is, what is that? He took on flesh. He identified with us. That through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. In the context of this, I believe, again, Paul's point is, why would you ever step away from this Christ? Why would you back from Him? Why would you look for hope somewhere else? Why would you look for fullness or fulfillment 
somewhere else. It is in Christ that you have been given new life. It is in Christ that you have this rich treasure of forgiveness. It is in Christ that you have joined Him in His victory. And to turn aside from Christ is to follow after defeated and powerless enemies. His warning The actual warning actually begins in verse 8. If you'll back up to there for a moment. There he warns us to beware the danger of looking away for Christ for fullness elsewhere when he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. I'm not going to hit all of this for time's sake tonight. But I do want to touch on a few things here. First, philosophy in itself, not a bad thing. The word philosophy just means love of wisdom. There are aspects of Christianity that we can say are philosophical. You, you, you think, and there's wisdom there. Where, where else is there wisdom? There's godly wisdom in Christianity. But this wisdom is, is a bad thing. This wisdom is empty and deceptive. The word empty is... It's a good word, empty, but the idea of being hollow. So there's the appearance of something there, but it's hollow. There's no substance to it. It's deceptive. It would lead you to a destination other than what it promises. And so to turn away from Christ is to turn away to something that's hollow and deceptive. And if you're not careful, you will find yourself captive. The word captive expresses the idea of being a spoil of war. There's a battle. And if you follow after this empty, deceptive philosophy, you might find yourself the spoil of war. Beware. Don't look away from Christ. To look away from Christ is to look away from richness, fullness, completeness, wholeness, away to that which is hollow, empty, that promises much but cannot deliver. These are privileges that are ours in Christ Jesus. And these privileges belong to us as Christians, yes, but they also belong to the church. Paul here is addressing them and applying them to the church. Look back to chapter 1. We know this. He's writing to the church, right? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. He's writing to the church at Colossae. In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, not you individually, but you in Colossae, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love. Knit together with whom? Surely with each other as they walk with God. He's writing to the church and he's warning them as a church, don't be carried away by these empty philosophies, these these hollow, deceptive philosophies. These privileges that he writes of, this fullness that is in Christ, it is yours if you are in Christ. That is a settled fact. It's settled by your union with Him. 
If you're united to Him, you must be filled with Him. But again, your enjoyment of these realities can rise and fall. In chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, he tells us, As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. He's yours. You've received Him. Now get up and walk. Get up and live. Live according to Christ. Live in light of that reality. Verse 7, Having been firmly rooted, you are rooted now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. We must keep our eyes firmly fixed upon Christ and enjoy the fullness of Him. And our enjoyment of Him will be conditioned somewhat upon, upon that reality. Whether or not we see that He is full of the fullness of God and that we are full because of Him. If we buy into the deceptive philosophies, then we doubt that and we start looking for fullness somewhere else and we become captive. So he warns us, don't do that. There is fullness. He's completely full. Christ, all the fullness of deity is in him and you are complete in him. Now, if I can change the metaphor slightly, we are full in him, right? But our enjoyment, we can fill up on our enjoyment. We can feast on Him and be filled up in our enjoyment. He fills the hungry. And so we don't want to be like children at mealtime, rummaging through the cabinets, looking for a snack. If you've ever done that, your mom probably said, get out of the cabinet, you're going to spoil your dinner. We don't want to spoil the dinner because we're rummaging in the cabinets for a quick snack that we'll fill up on and miss the meal. Another picture. If you eat a diet that is low in nutrients, you can actually be full, but your body doesn't have what it needs to function correctly. And in that condition, you are in need of supplements. You need to take vitamins. And you know there are people who count macronutrients and micronutrients, and I don't know what some of that stuff is real well, but, but they count this stuff really particularly trying to be healthy. If you will eat at the mealtime of Christ Jesus, you do not need any supplements. There's no vitamin that you need. You don't have to drink protein drinks, you know, spiritual protein drinks. You don't have to take any kind of extra supplement if you will feed upon Christ. All the fullness of deity dwells in Him. And you've been made full in Him. We're all susceptible to empty and deceptive philosophies. No one person is above the danger. We've talked before about how we naturally drift, not toward holiness, but in dangerous places. One of the reasons, surely, that God has given us a church body, a church family, and church leaders is for our protection and sanctification. Interaction with with believers, fellowship, worship with the saints, helps us as Christians to be built up in Him in whom we've been firmly rooted. The church is a means that God uses to help establish you in your faith, pointing you to Christ Jesus and to the privileges, the blessings that belong to you in Him. Are you enjoying and living upon these privileges? 
believe one of the tests that you could give yourself that might be an early warning sign is at the end of verse 7. We've been told there you've been firmly rooted and now you're being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Are you overflowing with gratitude? Or are you grumpy? If you're grumpy, that might be an early warning sign that you're kind of looking for fulfillment somewhere else. You're looking somewhere besides the fullness of Christ. Because if you were really eating there and filling up there, there should be gratitude. Christ has filled the Christian with all the fullness. He's filled our containers full. Rejoice in him.